Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet have often described the movement away from fossil fuels, the green transition in other words, as an economic opportunity, a chance to build a new supply chain that can power the economy for decades. And last week, the federal government released a budget that leans into this strategy in a way it hasn't been able to do during the pandemic. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I took a look at the federal budget, that most bureaucratic of documents. It puts down billions of dollars and calls for new policies to enable a transition away from fossil fuels. This heralds big changes in Canada, and this episode is about where some of that money goes, what it means for the future. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. I'm going to start with Pierre Graton, president of the Mining Association of Canada, a lobby group for mining, an industry that may benefit the most from this. When the budget came out, he sent me a one-word email. It said, phenomenal. As we said in our news release, uh, this is going to put a lock on Canada's position as top spot for exploration. I mean, we've always competed with the Aussies for this. I think this is going to vault us into first place and we're going to hold it. There's $1.5 billion for building roads and other infrastructure to remote mining spots. There's this 30% tax credit for investors who buy shares in companies searching for the metals the government has said we need, the so-called critical minerals. And there's lots more that affects the mining industry. They've really targeted minerals and metals that we need for electrification and to achieve our objectives to reduce carbon. He was really psyched about a tax credit that allows investors in a critical mineral exploration company, say a company exploring for lithium, to claim 30% of that money that they put in as a tax write-off. What's great about that is in the last two decades, Canada has attracted very little exploration into base metals, key metals like nickel, copper, cobalt, those very same metals that we need for electrification. And what's the story behind that? We just haven't attracted those dollars. It's gone into gold, times it's gone into diamonds, but it hasn't gone into base metals. I think largely it was commodity prices. They weren't where they needed to be to attract that kind of money. It wasn't just a Canadian problem. I mean, the global exploration for base metals has been low. But now we've got uh, soaring commodity prices for base metals, and the world is racing to capitalize on the critical minerals opportunity. And Canada, with this measure, is vaulting into top spot. Plus, the public geoscience commitments of some $79 million over five years are what I think is going to put a lock on top spot globally for Canada. So you think we're going to just see tons of dollars pour into drilling to basically find these? (laughs) I think it's going to be a very attractive mechanism for, for base metal exploration and rare earths. I mean, we have no rare earth industry. We have one mine. And yet the U.S. and our allies in Europe are very worried that they're beholden exclusively to China. They're looking to Canada to be an alternative supplier, the first thing we got to do is find those deposits. And this mechanism will help us find those deposits. It's going to be a boon to the junior explorers who have trouble raising money for rare earths because China dominates the market. So it's, it's a very, very powerful tool. And I think it's really going to turn things around. We started to see an uptick in base metal exploration already driven by commodity prices, but it's a global competition. And I think what this does is it makes the exploration world you know, say, wait a second, we can do better if we pursue these targets here in Canada. Uh, and I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. To me, this is an interesting twist on the way that the politics around climate change have evolved. 
It's only partly about climate change. I mean, there are definitely people saying, we have to do this, we have to make these changes to save the environment. But there's also people whose main concern is that if we don't invest and build supply chains for electric vehicles, say, then we, Canada, the US, the West, are going to be dependent on China. And people used to say this about oil. They still do. But more and more now, people are saying this about critical minerals for EVs, solar panels, wind turbines, etc. So now there's a new twist, which is Russia's the third largest producer of nickel in the world. So there's another shadow on the horizon when it comes to nickel and when it comes to, to batter, batteries and electrification. We need to make sure we can supply uh, ourselves. And, and of course we can. Canada is a vast country. We're the second largest in the world. We know we have nickel. <laughs> we have existing deposits. We're mining a lot still. There's more to be done. There's more to be found. We can grow our nickel business if we want to. And what this budget says to the industry and to the world is Canada wants to. And I think that's a very, very powerful signal the government has sent. You may have heard him say that Canada already produces a lot of nickel. Nickel is a huge component in batteries. And it's true. Canada is the sixth largest nickel producer in the world. But most of that nickel goes into the stainless steel market. And so the government is getting involved to stimulate new production. It's a shift away from years past when people have said, you know, if we need nickel, the market will handle that. Investors will give people money and people will start companies. Now there seems to be an acceptance that the market alone can't or won't help or won't enable the creation of a whole new supply chain. Well, I think it's a a dawning, you know, a recognition of the fact that take rare earths, for example, how can the market prevail using general market principles when state-owned enterprises control the, of another country control the market? You can't compete against a state-owned enterprise that doesn't care about profit, but that is acquiring assets for strategic reasons. So it, it's not a normal market when it's monopoly controlled by a state. So governments, including the United States, that exemplifies free market capitalism, has recognized that some form of state support and intervention is needed if we're going to have a rare earth business free of China. It has to happen. And here's the brass tacks. This budget isn't proposing to help build any single specific mine, but it proposes $1.5 billion for roads and other infrastructure that could support whole new mining districts where there might be many mines. Yeah. I mean, they don't call out Ring of Fire, but as I read this, it's that kind of region that they're talking about. He's talking about a mining project in Ontario's James Bay Lowlands called the Ring of Fire. About 20 years ago, an American company started exploring up there and discovered nickel, copper, other metals. They ran out of money, but to access those metals, you'd need an all-weather road to connect the region to the rest of Ontario. To date, no mining company has said they want to spend the billion dollars, perhaps more, that it would take to build a road to connect Ontario to the Ring of Fire. In fact, an Australian company, Wailu Metals, which is backed by a billionaire, just paid $600 million for most of those claims, and it's calling on the government to build that road. It's a region with known deposits of key materials like nickel that are undeveloped because there's a lack of infrastructure. And they're signaling, you know, we're coming to the table because we know we need those materials to meet our objectives and to transform our economy. I mean, $1.5 billion won't solve all issues, but I think it'll help unlock some well-known regions in the short to medium term. 
The domestic politics around the energy transition are obviously going to be intense, but even looking at this budget, the Ring of Fire, this is an area that's exclusively inhabited by First Nations communities, and it looks like some of those communities lean towards supporting road, while others do not. But it's also the broader region itself is one of the largest peat bogs in the world, which means it's a huge store of carbon and potentially significant for climate change. And all across Canada, there are remote areas like this that either don't have roads or don't have power and haven't been developed or explored, but may get a boost and may get developed or explored as a result of this budget. So I think what the government is doing here is they're signaling that the erosion has to stop and we have to turn this around and we have to rebuild because if we're going to transform our economy, if we're going to save our auto sector, then we need mining. This budget is in many ways a wake-up call, and I think they've put a lot of the right measures in place to start that reversal. So I'm pretty excited about it. It's a great time for the mining sector right now in Canada. I mean, if you read the budget, I think we're the only sector that's called out. Uh, I don't recall that in living memory, uh, the last time we've seen a budget position mining that way. So it's it's a it's a very exciting time. But we're also not alone. Other countries are doing the same. Uh, it is a race, but I think it's one we can win. And to me, the fact that the Liberal government has put mining at the center of its green transition strategy shows how the politics of climate change are evolving in surprising ways. I look at this budget as a business person, and, and this sends a really strong message that we truly are open for business in Canada. It's, it's serious about attracting that investment here, right? That's Trent Mell, chief executive of Toronto headquartered company Electra Battery Materials, which aims to refine cobalt, a key metal in EV batteries. They, they understand the long-term, again, generational investment. And so the, the serious dollars here that are being deployed, I think is going to be a boon, the, what I call the midstream of the auto supply chain. Uh, that, that could bode very well for an economy that has these resources uh, that has spent, you know, we, we all grow up hearing about being hewers of wood and drawers of water. Well, now we're going to take our wood and our water and we're going to do something with it. Well, what an opportunity that is for our kids and our grandkids. And we're right in the middle of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited. A quick anecdote. I first met Trent in 2018, back when his company was called First Cobalt. And it was exploring for cobalt in Cobalt, Ontario. I know I just said cobalt a couple times really fast. But back then, four years ago, cobalt prices were like a rocket ship. They were really high. And then suddenly they weren't. To make a long story short, in cobalt, it's still a very tiny market compared to other metals. And so it's subject to price swings. So when the price crashed in 2019, Mel pivoted his company from trying to find and mine cobalt to trying to refine cobalt so it can be used in batteries. Basically, what he said is that cobalt subject to such violent price swings, then he would move up the supply chain where he's a little more protected. By refining cobalt, if the price of cobalt goes up, he may pay a little more for cobalt, but he can also sell his product for a little more his story signals challenges that lie ahead for the federal government's strategy in trying to build a whole brand new EV supply chain, essentially from scratch. We're now decoupled, I guess, from the commodity cycle because we're a margin business, right? We, we buy feedstock at a prevailing market price and we sell it at a prevailing market price. And our growth is going to come from expansion of our, of our capabilities, uh, whether internally within our plants, new plants, and, and, just, you know, and just watching our costs. So, so trying to erect a whole new supply chain is going to be tough. Mel's company, for example, is going to have to import its cobalt from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where something more than half of the world's cobalt is produced. 
And a couple years ago, the whole goal of a North American supply chain was to avoid this because people have identified a lot of ethical issues around those mines. There's been child labor, unsafe conditions. Mel says his company is sourcing from the biggest mines, which are more regulated. But even on the other side, at least at first, after Mel refines the cobalt, he has to send it to Asia for the next stage of processing because there's no one in North America who does that kind of processing. And again, it may come back after that, back to North America for further processing, or it may end up in a battery in a car that's driven here. What I'm describing, how the cobalt will go from Africa to Canada to Asia, back to North America, you may recognize that that's just globalization. But the government strategy of building a battery supply chain in North America, so we don't have to ship things back and forth six times, so we have the mines here and all the processing here, in some ways it's just reversing globalization. It's deglobalization in a sense. And it's tricky because how do you build a car without a clear supply of the metals you need for it? How do you build a refinery for metals that go into cars that aren't really being sold yet? I asked Mel about this, and he acknowledged that there's going to be some bumps in supply and demand over the next few years. And these are the discussions that I'm having with the car companies now, is that like their, their uptick in demand really doesn't happen until 2025. Uh, and we've got production starting in January of 2023. So for two years, we've got to figure that out. So selling the product, not a problem. Like we can sell it two, three times over because there's, there's a lot of people that are looking for ex-China cobalt. So selling is easy, but obviously margin protection dictates you want to keep it close to home. So what I anticipate is going to happen here is we'll have a couple of the key relationships, whether it be auto companies or, or battery makers, and, and we're going to be kind of backhauling the product to Asia for a year or two. But you're, you're right to say that as the, the supply chain develops here in North America, yeah, there, there's going to be some inefficiencies in the early days, notably us, because we're early to market. So I think we'll benefit from it uh, because we'll be able to expand faster. But, but the first year or two, we are still trying to figure out how much we can keep on shore and how much we have to go farther afield. And Mel said he'd have no problem selling his cobalt, but he expects that other parts of the supply chain will pop up within a year or two. And maybe that's where the government support comes in. The budget puts $1.5 billion for mineral processing, materials manufacturing, basically the refining and processing to ore that happens after it's been mined. I think we have to do it, right? Because there's a lot of money being thrown around Europe and Australia and the U.S. And now Canada, I feel, has got an arsenal to tell the world, hey, we're open for business. Come, come and come and we'll help. Uh, I, I view this as a finite window. I'm sure there'll be ongoing investment opportunities. But, you know, this is, as you know, a, a generational uh, transformative cycle we're in and, and where are these plants going to be set up and that's going to define an ecosystem for the next hundred years and, and, and the feds understand that minister Shafang and others i think they get it and it's uh, it's nice it's taken us maybe a little longer than i would have liked to get there but I, I think we're there now and so for my my own company's growth plans um i think it it takes some shackles off and this might i think this budget is going to allow us to move a little bit faster on some of the things we're looking at now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So you've just heard that Mel and Gretchen are happy, but guess who isn't? Automakers. One of the theoretical winners, they're not thrilled about this budget. So much of this green transition is predicated on EV sales, just totally taking off, starting now, from basically 5% of total sales last year to four times that. 20% of all sales by 2026. And the four years after that, in 2030, zero emission vehicle sales are supposed to triple to 60% under Canadian government mandates. And then by 2035, they have to be 100% of all new cars. That's a massive transition. And automakers are not thrilled about the support this budget gives for that. 
I spoke to Dave Adams, president of the Global Automakers of Canada, a lobbyist for Honda, Toyota, Audi, many of the other huge automakers. And he said those EV sales mandates are going to be a heavy lift for automakers. The, the summary would be good first step, but there, there are many more steps required to ensure that both industry and government can get to where the government wants to go with our, you know, our EV penetration. So even though there's a lot of money in the budget, I mean, there's $5,000 consumer incentives to buy an EV, $550 million for businesses to buy zero emission vans and trucks, $900 million for charging infrastructure. The automakers are still a bit panicked that they're being forced to make EVs and maybe no one will buy them. If, again, if you just look at it from um, a logical perspective to the extent that you're requiring the automotive industry through mandates to meet certain targets, then it seems to us that it's contingent on the government or government and working with other players to facilitate those goals. And if there's a, a huge price disparity between the cost of an EV and an ICE vehicle, that's going to limit you know consumer uptake of the vehicle. So we can make all the vehicles that we want, but if people aren't buying them, then that's going to be a problem. Again, likewise with the charging infrastructure. And that actually, is, in some ways, is more important to get the the shovels in the ground now to build out that charging infrastructure so that people, you know, between now and 2026, when we have our first real target of 20%, the, you know, people can have the confidence to say, okay, well, yeah, I, I see signs along the highway that tell me that there's a, there's a charger here that I can charge my vehicle. That all needs to be built out now to give consumers the confidence to make that switch. So I guess, you know, your long way of answering your question, what's the right you know, quantum of uh, funds to be spent on, you know, incentives and charging infrastructure. I guess the short answer is, is more, (laughs) you know, what that quantum is, I'm not sure, but it just, uh, I guess I would just say that it's a bit disingenuous to be asking the industry to meet certain targets and then not providing the, the framework to allow the industry to meet its goals. So how much is the right amount of money? More. At the same time, other people told me The lift for government right now is so immense because we've done so little on this transition up to now. Uh, Well, I have quite a few reactions overall to the budget. There's, I mean, the general reaction is, okay, finally, a government is doing something substantial. That was Yasapa Petrunish, president of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. That's a nonprofit that advocates for zero emission transportation. Is it perfect? No, but nobody has like omniscient powers to be able to figure out everything all at once. So in general, a really good start to something that's quite aggressive, which are these emission targets federally and internationally. At the specifics level, you know, there are some things that are pretty intense. So like I can give you a couple examples. One of the things that pops out right away for us on the transportation side is there's this commitment to building a network of EV charging stations. And that sounds microcosmically simple and small. But if you look within there, there's the intention of developing a medium and heavy duty zero emissions vehicle regulation. And that would require 100% of medium and heavy duty vehicles to be fully zero emissions by 2040. Okay, sounds kind of boring. That's extraordinary. It's astronomical. Uh, If we go back a couple years, this same kind of proposal in the United States is what led truck manufacturers to try to sue California. And it, it led Donald Trump to undo federal regulations. 
Like this is the cause of a lot of consternation in the United States, a lot of political division. So it's super exciting that Canada has just kind of bureaucratically moved ahead with this. Oh, by the way, you know, we're going to have zero emissions, heavy duty vehicles by 2040. What that means, to give you an example, in the transit sector, transit buses and coaches are heavy duty vehicles. And most people don't think about them as such, but they are the most aggressive transit and city commitments in this country have the idea of zero emissions by 2050. Perhaps one of the most aggressive is the city of Toronto, where they're looking at something like 80% of their public fleet being zero emissions by 2040, like procurement. Nobody right now really has a clear pathway to getting to zero emissions by 2040 for their buses and coaches. That's extraordinary. And cities have been real leaders at pushing this stuff forward. So uh, that just means a complete and massive overhaul of the trucking and busing and coaching industry in the next 10 years to achieve a 2040 target. It's exciting. It's intense. It also means the trucking industry is going to have to really pick up with energy providers to figure out how the heck they're going to fuel all these things. Because right now, the fueling system is not out there for the trucking industry, just like it's not out there for the busing industry. So there's so much more in this budget other money for critical minerals, for EVs. There's also money for oil and gas. But the point that many people made to me is that this budget marks a departure from the past in a very important way. People told me that we're implementing policies and putting lots of money into an energy transition strategy instead of just talking about it as something that will happen in the future. And Petronish told me that as someone from Alberta who has focused on energy, she felt this change acutely. I went to high school in St. Mary's High School in downtown Calgary, and I loved math and physics, and so did all my peers. And they almost all went into oil and gas engineering, and I went off to try and build a sustainability career. There were no jobs in Alberta. So I had to leave Alberta, go to university in Ottawa, go to Europe, find my way through the nonprofit sector, create a business in this space, and basically kill what I eat to build up this business. Meanwhile, my colleagues and peers went to the University of Calgary, got their degrees or went to a college, went into the oil and gas sector, made a ton of money in their 20s. And what is happening now? There's a lot of anger. There is a lot of anger among people my age in our early 40s and late 40s who invested their careers in that sector and money was flowing. It was like cocaine. Okay, The high that people were on at a young age in Alberta, the amount of money they had, their paychecks, Not only was it unsustainable, it was exotic to see it because it didn't make long-term sense. But you could not convince anybody in the 2000s or 2010s even after the recession hit that this was a permanent trend downward. So my generation in our 40s, if you went into the oil and gas sector at that time and you did not make a choice to pivot very difficultly 10 years ago where you would have been laughed out of your boardroom or laughed out of your colleague and peer group, You are probably angry right now that your income is not as sustainable as it was, that the cash is not flowing, and you're not retiring at the age of 45. And I see it left, right, and center among the people I grew up with and in the community that I still hang out with in Alberta. Over on the flip side, you know, if you took my pathway, you probably earned a lot less money in your 20s and 30s. And now, if you stuck to it, the world is your oyster. You've got a thousand opportunities open to you in the sustainability sector. None of that was guaranteed 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And I think this divide between those of us in the sustainability sector and those in the oil and gas sector is a prominent one. Uh, It's a cultural one and it runs deep. Whereas I think young grads in their 20s, well, look look at the programs of engineering at even the University of Calgary. They're struggling to now move kids through oil and gas engineering. 
at least younger kids are starting to see that's not where the future is. But my generation, it's a cultural divide. And I think that's where a lot of the anger comes from. And that's what, you know, unfortunately, Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney have to manage. It's a generational thing where people were used to easy, fast, immediate cash. The equivalent of being a trader at the height of 2006 or 2005 in London on the stock exchange. It was that much money flowing that easily and that quickly that to come down from that, even when you're still earning a great income, is very hard psychologically. And that has to be recognized. When we pass policies like this and pass budgets like this, we're actually affecting people's perception of their ability to retire and their own sense of wealth and richness. And that is deep. And that, I would say, is you know results in anger on the back end and anger when people show up to vote and anger against budgets like this. So that's basically the end of our episode. But what I'll say is if this budget kind of landed like a tree in the woods when no one's around, that is, you didn't hear anything about it, I would say stay tuned. You may hear more about it in the future and the policies that it created. And in a future show, I want to dig deeper into the future of oil and gas, for which demand continues to grow, by the way. One thing I learned from this budget is that there is an energy transition advancing and the politics are going to be intense. It's going to affect the environment. It's going to affect everyone who drives or takes transit. It's going to affect remote First Nations communities. It's going to change the way we talk about national security and our relationship with China. And it's going to affect the economy. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting Down to Business by sharing episodes. And thanks to the Down to Business team. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Down to Business. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.